Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and thanks for listening to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm David Gottlieb. My guest today is Professor Yuval Harari, professor in the Department of Jewish Thought and head of the Program of Folklore Studies at Ben-Gurion University. Professor Harari is the author of Jewish Magic Before the Rise of Kabbalah, recently revised and published in English translation by Wayne State University Press. Professor Harari's work opens new vistas not only on the history of the practice of magic throughout Jewish cultures, but on the variety and the syncretistic depth of such practices. Professor Harari's work thus challenges perceptions and categorizations of what Jewish magic is and what its place in the Judaism of late antiquity was. It promises to facilitate a reappraisal of the performative practices and the beliefs and rituals on which Jewish life as we know it was founded. Professor Harari's work carefully and systematically examines a wide variety of Jewish texts and artifacts and reveals the extent to which the practice of magic is woven into Jewish ritual thought and culture from late antiquity through and beyond the Middle Ages. Professor Harari, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure for me, and I think I should... um Leave now, because after all this beautiful work, what else? <laughs> no, I no, I mean, we're just getting started, but thank you. I just want to start out by asking you how you became interested in the study of Jewish magic and how that became the focus of your research. Well, that's a question that takes me um, back ago to the time when I was a student at the Hebrew University and I did my MA studies, and I looked for a subject for um, my uh, thesis, and then Moshe Idel um, referred me to a manuscript in which I could find a treatise called The Sword of Moses, and I was fascinated by this treatise, um, and uh, this is how it all began, because, you know, uh, some, some 80 years before that, Moses Custer published a version of this text, but I realized very soon that I had at hand a much earlier manuscript that I could um, do better with, with, and uh, and 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 that's what I hopefully I did. I mean, and that's how it started. Then, during my PhD studies, I decided to go into the study of uh, magic, uh, Jewish magic as culture in late antiquity, and and mm-hmm. and yeah, very good. So. And and this, as I understand it, is a revised and updated version of the book. In other words, it's it's produced in English translation, but in the process of working on the translation, uh, you also uh, revised and to a certain extent res- expanded the text. Could you talk a little bit about uh, what what you learned in the course of working on this new edition or what new research surfaced about the practice and history of Jewish magic? And the English translation, what I had to do was to uh, mainly to update the um, the apparatus and to take um, 
to take into account um, the book of my dear friend and colleague Gideon Bohak, who uh, has already published in, I think, 2008, his book on ancient Jewish magic, a history. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, unthought of that uh, I'll, I'll, I'll publish my book in English and will not take into consideration his thoughts. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is, I mean, uh, one of the most uh, um, outstanding works on Jewish magic in antiquity, and and I had to do that. I had to take into account uh, other scholars. I mean, the the study of Jewish magic is is um, um, is well, how would you say um, is growing yeah. very fast, right. and there are many new, yeah, yeah, and there are many many new um, articles and 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 the studies that are being published and. You know, one has to uh, take care of all of that. But there's not so many, I mean, there's no real difference in my attitude or in the the, um, uh, main thesis of my book in Hebrew and English. And you you discuss uh, also the history, uh, the history of the study of magic. Right. And I want to talk a little bit about that with you and specifically about whether we are still... Uh, most of us, of course, not the scholars in this field like yourself, but whether broadly speaking, we're still heirs and in some way still hostages to the sort of evolutionist intellectual theory of magic um, propounded by uh, Fraser and Tyler, among others. That is to say that uh, we that society as a whole progresses from superstition to religion to science. Are we still in some sense under sway to that view of magic, especially in Jewish tradition? I'm not sure about it in general, because if you if you take one step further, then you come to um, contemporary um, religiosity or uh, spiritual movements that take magic very deeply into consideration. So, mm-hmm. in a way, we are beyond this uh, point of... of uh, of the disenchantment of the of the world, as Weber Weber put it, and we're sort and, of moving um, toward the reenchantment of the world. Yeah, yeah, we are there mm-hmm. already. I mean, you know, I it's mean, interesting the, you yeah. say that because you say in your epilogue at the very end of the book, you say, uh, and I quote: "The time seems ripe for abandoning the tendency to organize Jewish forms of life on the truth axis we have inherited." naturally and almost unwittingly from both the religious and learned elites. Um, and that's a very interesting observation. I wonder how, uh, if you can talk a little bit about that observation and how specifically the study, your study of magic informed that observation. Well, I'm very glad you um, mentioned this uh, epilogue because uh, this is the only place in the book where I'm a bit programmatic. I think that um, we really inherited a, a, a image of what Judaism is and what it uh, has already been in its uh, very true nature and what it actually should be for the for eternity and mm-hmm. and life is much broader. I mean, I mean, um, there were many kinds of Jews during history. There are many. A, a underground or, or on the ground streams of of, of uh, belief and practices that uh, were not part of of normative in 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 rabbinical terms normative Judaism in rabbinical terms part of it was 
rabbinic in itself, but but was termed uh, as uh, was stereotyped as non-normative or illegitimate. And right. you know, you know, I'm not I'm not here to judge whether whether what what Judaism what tr- Judaism truly is. What I, what I want wanted to do is to say that there are other types of behaviors and other types of Judaism that must be put on the table and, and take their place within the broad culture of, of historical Judaism. Right. And your research seems to suggest that these practices were not only widespread in in Judaism in late antiquity in the rabbinic era and beyond, but that but that what we have come to think of as normative Judaism, that is rabbinic Judaism, was deeply familiar with these practices, even if it looked upon, cast a cold eye upon them. Isn't that so? Yeah, I think so. But it depends on how, how we um, define magic or kishuf in Hebrew. And, you know, we are always part of a language game and, and terms are used for a, a do you say demarcating? Or, or, demarcating, or for, for, yes, right. Yeah, people or groups and, and for... A, so, so yes, rabbinic rabbinic uh, elites were familiar with what we may call kishuf practices or, or magic practices. It was part of uh, rabbinical narratives. There are narratives about rabbis who perform acts that actually look like what they would term as kishuf, as non-legitimate magic, had it been done by others. But and and we see it in, in narratives in in the Talmud and uh, elsewhere. There are um, evidence uh, of a um, a um, literate magic in antiquity, magic plates by people who were familiar with the scripture and with the uh, liturgical practices of that time, and with the, um, and they could read and write. And they served people, so so they were not uh, at the margin of society. And I think that these practices um, took place in daily life in Judaism um, all along the history. There were very few people like Maimonides or Leibovitch and others. I mean, there were others that actually rejected it from the outset. Yes. But yeah. Most mostly it was part of daily life, and we see it also in medieval and early modern manuscripts of books of recipes. You know, there are dozens and hundreds of books of re- magic recipes written in Hebrew and Aramaic, and yes, and it's, it's and all I, over. And I want to and I want to get back to asking you about that, but because you brought up, uh, well, actually because we have been, I brought up, and we have been discussing the issue of rabbinic familiarity with magic. Yep. And how frequently it occurs in the Talmud. I want to read this this um, passage from Tractate Sanhedrin that you include in the book, and just um, uh, have a couple of questions about how you react to it and how it depicts the rabbinic familiarity with magic. So here's here's that portion which you quote in the book. It's about Rabbi Yanai. Yanai came to an inn. He said to them, "Give me water to drink." They brought him shatita, a kind of porridge. He saw that the innkeeper's lips were moving. He spilled some of the drink, which turned into scorpions. 
He said to them, He said to them, I have drunk of yours, you too drink of mine. He gave her to drink, and she turned into an ass. He rode on her to the market. Her friend came and broke the spell. He was seen riding a woman in the market. I mean, that is just an extraordinary um, depiction of how the rabbis could be seen as understanding and turning magic against itself. But it's interesting, too, because you point out in your book that one of the points of magic was to challenge and in a way to reinvigorate religion. Can you talk more about that? In, in the connection to the story? Well, so let's, <laughs> let's begin with the story. I mean, does the story show a kind of rabbinic familiarity with religion and an ability to sort of use it against itself? And from my point of view, everybody um, in antiquity was threatened by the opportunity or by the uh, opportunity that someone would uh, perform um, hostile magic against. Right. So this was a daily problem, right? A daily fear. I think, I think so. This was a daily problem. And, you know, we find in, in uh, for example, we find in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in, in Mesopotamia, we find what we call Qibla bowls that, are, uh, that were made in order to turn hostile magic or, or harmful magic back, back on the one who sent them, who mm-hmm. had sent them. Mm-hmm. So people were threatened by, by the, and, and, and so, so if, if one found himself sitting um, in an inn and he could see someone um, talking uh, on the shatita and he, uh, there was a, uh, he could, I mean, there was uh, a possibility that some, something very bad was going to happen. So right. he could reverse it and he could, uh, first he could check it and uh, uncover the spell. Mm-hmm. Then he could um, face them and overcome the witch in the inn. So in a way, it's a very concise story that tells you both about the um, threat of women as, as um, uh, witches. Yeah. And uh, there's an uh, issue which I deal at length in my book. And then, um, and then about, about the power of the rabbis to overcome other agents of ritual power, uh, be them Gentiles or uh, women or whoever they are, they were. You know, so, this, so we find yeah. it. Yeah. This raises two really um, other interesting questions that I wanted to ask you about and that, that – your answer just now brought up. And one is um, that is how the rabbi's uh, reaction to magic seems, at least in terms of their reaction to sorcery, to be sort of founded in a profound fear of female sexual power and that sorcery is intimately tied to that power. Is that, am I getting that right? I think so. I think, I think that the accusation we should uh, divide between the, the doing the sorcery itself, the culture of, of performing sorcery, and the political accusation uh, of the other in doing so. And I think mm-hmm. that's, uh, that, that blaming women for doing sorcery was not part of what happened, really happened in life, and I'll say a word about it in a, in a moment, but a part of, of male struggle, again, it's a part of gender struggle, between uh, men and women, in which the rabbis who control the or wish to control their society 
I try to um, to um, um, to push away mm-hmm. or to 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 handle the uh, threatening power of of the um, a female gender, and by stereotyping their power as magic, which means it's dangerous, it's illegitimate, it comes from a sinful source. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it it oppos- in a way it opposites the the spiritual power of the rabbis. Very so it's some mundane, mundane um, um, power that comes from illegitimate uh, sources and employed by women, which should be drawn to the back of the stage, right? right. Now, right now I would like to say that it's not that women did not at all perform magic in antiquity, because if I say so, I, I myself would be the one who who, who would um, um, belittle their ability to take place in the society because uh-huh. I believe that everybody was able to perform magic in antiquity and why not women? I mean, men and women as well uh, yeah. took part either the, themselves or through agents, through professional agents, in this kind of uh, pre-industrial technology or something like that. I mean... It's, it's a kind of technology yeah. that was a very rational one, if you look into it, um, that's uh, based on assumptions that we may not uh, accept concerning the way the world is run, uh, concerning the way the world is run. Yeah, right? yeah. I, uh, and it's so fascinating because it seems that these practices in terms of what's been found in archaeological sites and in the Cairo Geniza were very common. Yes, they were common. Mm-hmm. They were common. I mean, I mean, I mean, we find they were common. They are still common. I, 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 I'm, I mean, during the last years, I've been doing a, a fieldwork in Israel. There are still people who write amulets today and magic plates today in Israel. They're not, I mean, um, uh, mainstream doctors, of mm-hmm. course, but mm-hmm. there are still people who are um, who, who do use these practices, and people come to them and pay money and sit for hours uh, at the entrance of of, of their um, atelier or whatever uh-huh. in order to uh-huh. have their um, uh, service. And it happened also in antiquity. We have a lot and lot of, of evidence. I mean, a broad evidence for that. We have more than 1,500 uh, magic balls from Mesopotamia, from all over Mesopotamia, from the 5th to the 7th century, mm-hmm. mainly for um, exercising purposes. We have Hundreds, so even more of that, um, thousands of, of fragments, magic fragments from the Cairo Geniza. We have, we know of two um, large books of magic, Sefer Harazin, the Book of Mysteries, and Chabad de Moshe, the Sword of Moses, from the uh, first millennium. Um, I mean, I mean, there's a broad evidence concerning what we call the insider evidence, the evidence left for next generations by the very activity of magic, not um, evidence which is found in sources which are not are non-magical and talk about magic from the outside. Right. I mean, we have the evidence of what, was, what really was carried out. I think, uh, and this is very interesting, and you raised a point that I think is a main theme in your book, and that is the distinction between insider, what you call insider and outsider magic. And I understand that to mean, you know, the insider magic is the is the primary source um, 
that supply concrete evidence of magic culture from a practical and performative perspective, and the outsider uh, magic are the sources that expressed awareness of that, but that don't approach it from a practical point of view. Is that a, a correct depiction of your distinction? And how is the distinction reflected in in the in the amulets, in the bowls, and the other artifacts, um, and the texts yeah, yes, that you've ex, that you've examined? It is a it is a um, correct distinction, but not between inside and outside magic, but between insider and outsider sources, because until recently, let's say more or less 30 or 40 years ago, the main sources we used to have were outsider sources, uh-huh. writings of the rabbis, the Bible, the Bible um, uh, second uh, temple period literature, rabbinical uh, writings, um, uh, philosophical writings, and so on and so forth. But we didn't, so all we knew about magic or the ma- culture magic of the Jews of that time was um, through the lens or the hostile lens of the elites, and uh, this is, these are political writings in, yes, in a way because yes. because they have they have an agenda. But now we we have lots and lots of of a, a artifacts and writings that reflect the practical activity, either the interest in doing uh, what we may call magic acts or the evidence of doing it. Uh, per se, I mean the um, the what I call performative artifacts, the mm-hmm. artifacts that were uh, prepared for 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 doing something in the world. So we have the the evidence itself, and I think that, and this is what I do in my book. I think that we first we have to change places. We first have to describe Jewish magic uh, according to its own evidence, and then when once we understand that, we can go back to the outside the evidence and have a second look at it and see how political it is. Very and, interesting. And I really analyze the, the outside the evidence from a political, social political point of view. Uh-huh. And uh, it seems in reading your book, one of the things that comes over a reader is an awareness of how much even um, what we would call normative Jewish religious practice has magical elements in it. Um, one can point to the Kaparot ceremony at Yom Kippur or Mezuzah or even uh, Tefillin to a certain extent have aspects of amulet or, or, or warding off certain spirits and attracting um, others. So has your research um, helped shed light for you, as it did for me, on how much uh, magic or magic-like practices were adapted by rabbinic Judaism um, so that they were deprived of their negative or scary connotation? So it's, uh, first of all, most a question of uh, language game. I mean, and it's a question of the amic attic attitude, because from the amic point of view, from the point of view of the society itself, Mezuzah is, of course, not a magical um, um, artifact, Mm -hmm. even though from the ethic point of view, from my point of view, from the point of view of the one who, or the researcher, or or the one who looks at it from the outside, it doesn't really matter whether it is a normative, uh, commanded 
a part of the ritual behavior of the society or whether it's a um, um, a non-normative or, or, right. or a, um, right. uh, artifact. It doesn't really matter whether a person um, expressed an adjuration, a, a piece of, of a, a magic formula of adjuration, mm-hmm. or whether 10 people uh, goes together to a certain holy place and say whatever they say in order to bring grain uh, right. on earth. I mean, right. from, the, from the outsider point of view, there's no such a huge... A difference between what we may call religion and we may call magic. It is there's a huge um, a gap between them from the emic point of view, from the point of view of the of society itself. And like um, I, I I learned it from Jacob Neusner who um, wrote in one of his the article that. From our point of view, the rabbis of the Babylonian rabbis they could have uh, been approached as uh, lawyer magicians, but their um, students probably or oh, definitely would not think of them as magicians, but as holy men, uh, or you know, and so on and so forth. But it's in a way, it's a question of of terms. But it is terms a question of terms. But in a way, it's also a question of epistemology too, right? Because magic is a is a categorization that we make that may that may not right. translate well to the actual time right. in which these practices existed. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were scholars who, uh, in, in regarding, um, who were regarding uh, Hellenistic magic or the study of, the study of religion uh, in general um, um, suggested to um, give up the use of the term magic mm-hmm. from the academic discourse on this ritual uh, behavior of of people or peoples. So I don't think so because I think we are caught in our language game. We don't have a, de- a definition, a dictionary definition of magic uh, even today. But we, I'm, I'm, you know, I follow Wittgenstein in this in this um, in this quest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I I believe that you and I know more or less how to use the term magic in a way that we can. Um, converse about it. Yes. So even though we might not share the same um, uh, same uh, dictionary um, uh, definition of the term, we are part of of a language game that enables us to talk about it. We are not part of the language game of the terms like terms like kishuf and kashpanut in late antiquity. Mm-hmm. But we can we can see we can go and see. What is there in the, those texts, the insider texts, that we, from our standing point, um, um, call magical texts, and then try to to understand why do we identify them as magical texts? Right. And once we understand that, we have a linguistic basic for building the corpus of the insider evidence. And once we have that, we can see what the ideas and the beliefs and the practices within this inside inside the corpus are uh-huh. and then we can have the when the, we can have the a broad understanding of what magic was for them at that period but we must start with our language game yes. so i don't there's, there's a reason to um, throw away this term we can use it yeah. you know it's yeah. just more or less we know what we mean by it right i wanted to ask you also about 
um, one subject, uh, two related subjects, really. And these are um, practices that are mentioned in biblical and rabbinic text, um, one of which I'm aware of uh, you making a connection to uh, with magic, and another I'm not sure about. I, I may just have uh, missed it in my reading of the book. But the first is prophecy. There seems to be a strong link between prophecy and esoteric knowledge. Um, obviously, uh, the rabbis decreed uh, the end of prophecy after the destruction of the mm-hmm. Second Temple, but there is still esoteric knowledge and practice, it seems, that involves a kind of divination that approaches um, prophecy. Is that correct? And can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I mean, you're right that uh, prophecy ceased to exist, um, according to the rabbis, um, uh, before their time, but they say that fools and children, I mean, prophecy was given to fools <laughs> right. and children. Right. And people usually understand that in a um, in a kind of a derogative um, um, uh, notion. I mean, mm-hmm. that whoever, uh, whoever uh, declares himself to, to, to be a a prophet is uh, like a kid or a fool. Yeah. But I try to show in my book, I think that fools and children were um, were a kind of agent of uh, divination in antiquity. Fools because they maybe maybe because they used to sleep in the graves in graveyards, uh-huh. and it said in it said in in the rabbinic. I mean, I try to to put together some um, um, uh, sources from rabbinic literature in order to show that. Yeah. And about Kids, we know, we know it for sure. It's, you know, give me, uh, um, give me a, a verse, a biblical verse. I mean, rabbis and others go to kids and ask them for biblical verses, and they, according to these verses, they, it's like a oral bibli- bibliomancy, you know. Yes. It's, it's yes. Go to a kid who is a oral um, book and ask for a uh, whatever verse that comes to his mind, and they, they study something from this verse. So it's a kind of Kids as agents of divination. Really, so they were not prophets anymore, and and you know the rabbis also say that rabbis are better than prophets. I mean, are better than prophets, and and they themselves uh, now take them pla- their place. Yeah. And yes, yes, prophecy and divination are two sides of the same phenomena. And the other practice I wanted to ask you about, which of course defined. Um, pre-Judaic Israelite practice for millennia is the practice of sacrifice. Um, can you talk a little bit about the connection um, that you see, if you do, between the certain magical practices and the practice of ritual sacrifice? Yeah, only, I mean, it's. I think it's too, if, if, if we take all these um, ritual practices together, put them together, it, it goes beyond the way that I described the basis for my um, study because I started with with texts with certain linguistics elements within them, but uh-huh. now you go further and further. Oh, but it's okay. Yeah. Uh, what I would like, if, if I may, what I would like to say is that uh, ritual and and um, sacrifice. Is part of magical practices. Is also part of magical practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, they are uh, small and uh, very easy to get animals that are sacrificed in magical practices. 
Um, but 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 this goes on. It disappears in the normative ritual of Judaism, but it still goes on mm-hmm. within the minor, if we may say so. Minor, minor sacrifice are uh, do do exist in in uh, magic rituals, and um, and uh, mainly at you know it it, it uh, increases in in. Middle Ages and early modern uh, books of recipes, we find more and more um, reasons for and acts of sacrifice of all kinds of uh, poor animals yeah. that were uh, killed in in very um, uh, um, awful ways. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Like yeah. Uh- one final question, because somehow our, our time has already flown by, that uh, I'm asking, because you mentioned it and it piqued my curiosity, really, uh, from a personal perspective, is that the magical practices that you see today in contemporary Israel, are there clear connections and a clear continuity between those practices and what you have been studying from millennia past? Um, in some cases, in manuscripts, you can find, in magic manuscripts, you can follow a formula from uh, antiquity to modern uh, printed books. Wow. Um, I mean, so in some cases, you do find it. Mm-hmm. Um, in other cases, like in the cases of magic plates, white plates, the tassa, mm-hmm. uh, there's no um, direct connection, but the very use of, of a vessel uh, in, in on which one writes adjurations and then use it for uses it for um, uh, magic or ritual purposes uh, that start in antiquity. Then uh, we find it in the Middle Ages in the uh, Muslim uh, in culture, and then we find it in other ways in other um, uh, manifestations uh, in Jewish communities. In the Arab lands, and then it immigrates to Israel with those Jews who came to Israel in the 50s and 60s, and and it's still practiced today. So in a way, you may find continuity and changes, mm-hmm. uh, what folklorists may call oikotypes of of the same type of of activity that goes from antiquity to our day. It's not that. Uh, magic is should be done strictly according to the um, uh, uh, scripted procedure mm-hmm. procedure in the in the writings because uh, when we when we meet people when I meet people and I talk to them I I, re, I I understand that there's a lot of place for creativity personal creativity a person who work who works according to a book of magic may take part of the instructions and combine them with instructions for other places and and create something new in order to achieve something. But there is a a line of continuity from a pre-Kabbalah magic tradition to what what was called practical Kabbalah Mm -hmm. and to even to magic in our day. Very interesting. Uh, My Great pleasure speaking with you. The book is fascinating. Uh, the book is Jewish Magic Before the Rise of Kabbalah, published by Wayne State University Press. And my guest has been the author, Yuval Harari, professor in the Department of Jewish Thought at Ben-Gurion University. Professor Harari, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, David. <laughs>